Ever notice that nothing ever seems good enough and that you're always comparing yourself to other people? If so, this episode is for you. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together we might very well make it to the excellent athlete or the excellent professor, whatever it might be. And that's great. That's amazing. Enjoy that. But equally, we might not. And that's not a disaster. It's not a catastrophe. That's okay too. So being able to live inside that reality, accepting that things may go well, they may not go so well, I think is so, so important to live in a happy, contented, and I would say life that's filled with success because we know that striving hard and working too hard is not the recipe to success actually being able to have balance and purpose and acknowledge when things aren't going to go well and and strive in a very active and optimistic way to try and improve and grow and all the rest of it these are really amazing things so that's why I you know that's my pushback against this idea that excellence is the thing we should be striving for if not perfection because I think it's really important to know that those things might happen but they might not and every outcome is okay what's most important is that we exist we live we breathe and we enjoy uh, this incomprehensible existence that's the most important thing i'm so excited to be here with you today and today's episode is embracing the power of good enough a journey through perfectionism with thomas curran Talking about perfectionism and the endless pursuit of more is something that hits home for me because this is my life. I have struggled with perfectionism and never feeling like my accomplishments are enough. So whenever I got to sit down with Tom and hear about some of the ways that perfectionism is pervasive in our culture and ways that we can tackle this on our own and systemically has been really helpful. As human beings, we are imperfect by nature, yet often the weight of comparison and societal expectations skyrockets our pursuit of perfection and takes a toll on our well-being. And in fact, this is something that I plan to be studying in my Master's in Applied Positive Psychology, which which starts in just a couple of weeks. I'll be heading to the University of Pennsylvania and starting this master's program. In this episode, I sat down with Tom Curran, a professor of psychology and behavioral science at the London School of Economics to unravel the complexities of perfectionism, providing you with knowledge and tools to strive for a healthier mindset. And this podcast and his book have been pivotal for me and my friends that I've shared it with. Tom's expertise and extensive research on perfectionism culminates in his book, The Perfection Trap, Embracing the Power of Good Enough. He has conducted groundbreaking studies on perfection and discovered that the pressure to be perfect is still on the rise, affecting everything from our social media feeds and parenting styles to our work and our hobbies. To some, the book title might turn you off, the embracing the power of good enough. For people who are high achievers and strivers, you might think, well, that's that's just a cop-out. But if you feel that way, I highly encourage you to listen to this episode because whenever I hear good enough, that is my initial reaction. But I encourage you to listen to this episode to hear some of the nuance of what that means. And I've also recorded episodes in the past about comparison, the paradox of expectations, And also an episode about reframing our mindset around achievement with ACT psychologist Dr. Z. Ona. So those are also linked up in the show notes if you want to delve further. So back to this episode with Tom. He and I sift through the intriguing realm of perfectionism. We discuss the three main types, self-oriented, socially prescribed, and avoidant perfectionism. I didn't even know there was multiple types of perfectionism. And we explored how these tendencies manifest in our daily lives. Through his research, Tom guides us to reflect on the expectations we set for ourselves, the harmful comparisons we make, and how our relentless pursuit of success can sometimes lead to failures and setbacks. Something that might intrigue you further is that we talked about real-life lessons from the world of athletics. Throughout our conversation, we'll draw inspiration from the world of athletics, where the pursuit of perfection is often unrivaled. From the grueling challenges of the Tour de France to my own personal racing experiences, we'll examine how striving for perfection can leave us feeling empty. Let's redefine success and consider self-compassion. 
In fact, I recorded a TEDx talk back in 2015 about redefining success. And I'd love to give another one because since then I have gone so deep into the science of what this means and have so much more language on how to implement that in life. By embracing imperfections and countering perfectionist tendencies, we can foster personal growth and development. Additionally, we'll explore the value of adopting a growth mindset and accepting plateaus and regressions. Together, we'll challenge the unattainable standards perpetuated by society and learn to appreciate achievements in their proper context. Discover the power of embracing perfections and finding solace in the notion of good enough. It's time to redefine success on your terms and cultivate self-compassion along the way. Before we get into it, I just want to give you a heads up that the Women's Cycling Summit in Breckenridge, Colorado starts next week. It is August 14th through the 17th, and I have been hard at work making sure that all of the details are nailed down and that we are going to have a really great experience for you. My co-founder, Mike McCormick, and I are putting on the Women's Cycling Summit alongside the Breck Epic. So it is not part of the Breck Epic, but it will be sharing a lot of the event space with the Breck Epic. If you are interested in turning intention to action and elevating other women and hearing how women have overcome odds to find their careers and to find a new level in their life, this is a great summit for you. We'll also have group rides that are led by the Venture Birds and Skills Clinics, Tech Clinics by Shimano, Orange Seal, and Cindy Wong, and a number of incredible speakers, including Jen Dice from People for Bikes. We'll have Rachel Scott. We will have Aaron Huck, we'll have Jenny Smith, and many, many more. You'll also hear from several past podcast guests at the summit, including Kate Boyle and Starla Tettergreen. This event is free, so go to womencyclingsummit.com. There is a prompt for an email newsletter sign up, and I send out the details every single day, giving you updates on the schedule and where to be and who you will be meeting. I will be racing in the morning, so I won't be attending any of the morning events. And then in the afternoons, after I'm done racing, I will be emceeing the speakers and I will be available and excited to meet you. There is no official sign up or tickets to come to the event because, again, it's a free community event because we want to impact as many people as possible. So if you'd like to come, head over to womencyclingsummit.com. Feel free to also go to my website, sonyalooney.com, and use the contact form if you have any questions. We are really excited to see you at the Women's Cycling Summit in Breckenridge on August 14th through August 17th. If data and Wi-Fi allow, I will also be streaming some of this on my Instagram account, at Sonia Looney. So if you aren't following already, go over to at Sonia Looney at Instagram, and you can check out some of the Women's Cycling Summit stuff over there as well. All right, so let's hop into this episode. This was one of my favorite episodes that I've recorded in the last 12 to 24 months that I can remember. It's hard to remember all the episodes, of course, because I've been doing this for six years, but this one definitely stands out in my mind and I highly encourage you to listen to it. So here is Tom Curran and I hope you enjoy our time together. Thomas Curran, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we were talking just a second ago about athletics, and I was, I'm curious what your athletic background was growing up that made you want to pursue a bachelor's in exercise science. Well, I was a really good football player. I I don't like to blow my own trumpet, but I did get quite far in the system when I was younger. And unfortunately, um, I was a late maturer. So I got to 14, 15, and, and all of the other boys were a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger, a little bit faster. and um, I came out of the system, which is a really sad, sad thing is to experience as a child. However, what it did is it kind of pumped me a little bit to do something in that area, stay in the sport at some level. So that's why I decided to study sport at college. And I've kind of wound up in a very different world, but I'm always really keen to uh, talk about sport, to explore sport and use sport actually in my own research to try and understand a little bit more about perfection. Yeah. I mean, do you have some early memories of bumping up against this almost like perfectionism epidemic as a youth athlete? The biggest challenge back then was accepting that it wasn't going to happen. Because when you're young and you go through the system, you kind of get you kind of get a lot of hot air blown up you by various people and, and the system itself. And you think, oh, you, you've been selected, so it must be good. And you've got a really good chance of making it. And it's so exciting. And I think once you kind of crushing realization that you get cut because it's quite a brutal process, you just get cut is really for a child is is really difficult to, I guess, cope with uh, healthily. And certainly I didn't. And I think that was my big that was my first experience with setback, with challenge. 
and I think if reflecting back on it, I probably those were these sort of early signs of a sort of burdening, burgeoning perfectionist that wasn't able to deal with that very well, went in on myself, blamed myself, and spent quite a few months very low mood, a lot of self a lot of self like criticism. And even though there's nothing I could do, like I just, you know, I matured three or four years later into an adult. But at that time I I just you know that's just fate right <laughs> unfortunately i was born like that and there was no way i could change it but you still blame yourself and i think that was that was a moment where i was like oh, okay yeah this is i'm really quite harshly self-critical on myself and that was probably the where it where it began yeah i think it's really interesting so as i was going through your book you know a lot of times when we're reading things we are self-reflecting on how this applies to us <laughs> and in our own context and I'll just share with you guys that you you guys, meaning you and the listeners, is that I used to be a perfectionist and definitely, you know, everything needed to be an A plus, everything needed to be perfect. Otherwise, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable, all of those things. And I thought that I had sort of separated myself from that, overcome it in a number of different ways, to the point where I don't strive to have a perfect process when when approaching anything. I just approach it, you know, I'm going to do the best I can and whatever happens happens. So I thought that I was over being a perfectionist. But then when I start going through your book here and reading about some of these tendencies and even some of the things that you just said, I realized, wow, this is still deeply ingrained. I thought that I was past this and I'm not. So for those listening who might not maybe people listening say, "Well, I'm not a perfectionist or I'm a recovering perfectionist." Can you talk about what perfectionism actually is and how it shows up in people's lives. Absolutely. So a lot of people think that perfectionism is all about high standards and perfectionists do have high standards, but what we need to pay attention to is where those standards are coming from, because they can come from a very active, optimistic place of wanting to do better, wanting to improve and wanting to learn. That's really healthy. Well, they could come from a little bit of a deeper, darker place, which is a, a need to repair or conceal or hide what we think is something that's like deficient or defective about us. And that's really important to remember because perfectionists really, if you want to get at the root of it, or perfectionism comes from that deficit place of not feeling like we're enough. And so everything that you see on the surface is really an, a compensatory mechanism to try to prove to the world that actually we're not that defective person that we deep down think we are. And that's why you see a lot of self-criticism come out in perfectionistic people, because once they've exposed a weakness, they've exposed their imperfect self. And of course, we're going to go in on ourselves. We're going to start to really castigate that that those imperfections and that chink in the armory, so to speak. So if we really want to get and, and understand perfectionism, that's where it starts. And that's that's important because that has knock-on implications for what perfectionism does to us and also how it interplays with things like performance and behaviors, feelings, emotions, and all the rest of it. So what are some things like you mentioned uh, for yourself, whenever you experienced a setback at a young age, you almost over-identified with it. You took too much responsibility for that said, quote, failure. What are some some ways that perfectionism shows up in people's lives and their behavior? Yeah, what you said earlier about letting other people down, that was also a very uh, rural feeling for me too. Not, I, not only did I feel like, oh, you know, this was something that I did wrong or that I didn't put, you know, train hard enough or stay on task for long enough. But I also let, you know, my parents down, my family down, who also had these like expectations for me and, and all the rest of it. And and so perfectionistic people really take things so personally because everything is almost like an a, per, a personal attack. And life is almost, I could describe it in the book as a sort of court of appeal our flaws we're constantly trying to to redeem ourselves to redeem those imperfections that we know deep down we we have and so everything that we're doing really is to try to cover over conceal hide and prove to other people that we're worth something and of course that's fine if things are going okay but the moment things start to go wrong uh, and life doesn't turn out the way we planned or we fail then that can be really problematic for the for the perfectionist because essentially that failure, that setback has exposed what deep down they were trying to hide. So those feelings of letting other people down, feeling like we let ourselves down, a hyper-competitive streak, a need at all times to prove ourselves of worth, 
those are kind of very powerful motivating factors inside the perfectionist. Yeah, one that came out in myself that I was surprised what was overworking. I must continue working so that I can be not perfect, but just because I feel like I have to do this work. And if I don't do this work, asking what does that mean? What does it mean if I don't overwork? Well, then I'm not good enough. So like everything coming back to not being good enough. Yeah, and and also there's a kind of a feedback loop as well because if on the one occasion you maybe don't work as hard and something then happens, it's a reminder that actually you should have worked harder in the first place. So then we overcompensate for that by working even harder the next time. And you're coming in to see how that takes off really and begins to get extremely exhausting, overwhelming for the perfectionists. And this is why perfectionists people burn out quite a lot too, because they are overcompensating all the time for a sense of, well, if I don't work, then I'm not going to hit, hit this goal. And if I don't hit that goal, then I'm not going to be in this place. And it's always what's coming next and what's the next thing and what's the next thing. And can we keep reaching and can we keep going? Of course, it's never a de- destination. There never is an end point. That's kind of the point. Perfectionism it kind of exposes our dreams all the time as dead ends because it is never enough. There's always something uh, more. So overwork and a kind of overstriving streak is is a, is a very strong behavioral uh, tendency for a perfectionist person. So this might be more of a philosophical question, but is for, for people who aren't perfectionists or don't identify that way, do they ever feel like what they've done is enough? Or is it just sort of a general like facet of life that nothing will just ever be enough? And that is, a, is just something that we need to accept as human beings. You know, every perfection is a spectrum this is the first thing to say so some people will be really high on that spectrum some people will be really low and some people will be in the middle and most of us are around the middle now the people who are low on the the perfection spectrum it doesn't mean that they don't harbor some kind of worry about not being good enough some you know often these these feelings will creep in but what they're able to do and the perfectionist isn't able to do is rationalize those feelings and unable to identify that actually, you know, it's not rational to feel not good enough all the time. We have achieved, there are things that we've done in our lives that have got off to this position. We can take a, a bigger picture look and yes, okay, things haven't gone well in this moment, but there's always next time and we can always keep growing and improving. And that's the main thing. I'm not going to get hung up over it for too long. I'm not going to let it impact on my you know, emotional stability or all the rest of it. But I'm just going to let it be. I'm just going to let it be part and parcel of, I guess, what it's what it's like to live a life that's imperfect because we are just human after all. So that's the key difference between someone who's lower on the perfectionism spectrum and someone who's higher. And in your book, I, I thought this was interesting because this is something I've thought about a bit is Carol Dweck's model of the growth mindset and how you know growth mindset is sort of the antidote to over-indexing on talent or outcome or achievement. And yet there can be a dark side of having a growth mindset. Can you talk more about how growth mindset is related to perfectionism and perfectionist behaviors? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, by the way, I don't think... So Carol didn't I didn't intend for this to happen, I don't think. But such is the obsession with growth in modern culture. Her ideas have kind of congealed into something of a cliche. Mm-hmm. And whereas the, what she was pointing out with the growth mindset is that it's really important for us to acknowledge that our uh, abilities, talents, and intelligence are, uh, are malleable. That's to say that they, you know, we can we can grow them, we can improve them, and that's key because that helps us keep developing, keep moving forward, keep growing and learning, and all the rest of it. What we've kind of turned that into is a desire and a need to keep growing at all times and for all situations. And for me, that can turn into a problem if left unchecked because growth and more growth and more growth and more growth followed by more growth is ultimately going to lead us into the trap of perfectionism because it's going to keep us continually pushing for more and it doesn't recognize that actually there are moments in our lives where we simply regress we set we stand still we don't go anywhere and that's fine there are moments in life when we realize we didn't know as much as we thought we did. That's also fine. And there are some times where there is no growth to be had in situations. We knew what to do. We just screwed up. We just had a bad night. You know, it's not as if we can take any learning from this because we knew what we needed to do. And that, by the way, is very common. So by focusing on growth, 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 and growth at all times, then we can we can push ourselves in the direction of perfectionism. And what I'm saying there is there's nothing wrong with growth mindset at all. I think I think what Carol Dweck's ideas are exceptionally useful, but we also have to remember that 
there is a limit to how much we can grow and we don't have to grow all the time. Yeah. And as somebody that can over-index on effort, something that has come up for me with this is, okay, so I need to be focused on effort instead of outcome. I need to be rewarding people for their effort. But then somebody who has a tendency to overwork and over-effort, then it becomes like almost a fixed mindset about your growth mindset of now I need to just work super, super, super hard because the work becomes the outcome. But that's exactly that, and that's exactly what I'm saying. And that, in many ways, is a very succinct way to say exactly what I've just said. And and I think you're absolutely right. It's it's really about acknowledging what I think Kyle was trying to acknowledge in the when she came up with this framework, and that's that these things are malleable, and that actually you know it's it's, it's important for, as a starting point as human beings to understand that so that we can go out, explore, find purpose and develop our skills and talents. Like that, you know, that's the key. That's a crucial part of, of life, I, in my opinion. So absolutely, it's it's about the growth development, but we can't get too fixated on the effort because if we start to do that, we can, we can go down to the path of perfectionism. And this is slightly off topic, but I'm recording a podcast soon with, uh, with a friend of mine. He's like a fellow professional athlete creator type. And we were talking about how you know, we've put in all this effort into our podcasts, our newsletters, all these things. And it's really exciting at first because you see lots of growth. But then at a certain point, your work just sort of plateaus. And if you're always focused on growth as the goal, then you get very discouraged and lose your motivation. So we've talked about well, where are we finding our motivation from if growth isn't the goal? And I think that, yeah, what you said, like growth is super important. But if it's the only thing, then that can be really demotivating at times. Yeah, I think it's like anything, you know, it's trees, you know, they grow to a certain point and then they sit in a state of stasis for many, many centuries. Human beings, you know, we reach a peak and then we then we plateau and then we start to decline. You know, these are kind of natural life courses of, of everything that we do. We don't always stay in a, in a steady state of perpetual growth and that's absolutely fine. The challenge, I think, is to find the sweet spot you know, of sustainability, where we feel like we're having an impact, where our work has meaning and people are being uh, positively impacted by what we're doing, whilst at the same time understanding that if we continue to keep going, we're going to compromise the quality of that output. And yes, we might get a few extra followers or whatever, but the 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 counter to that is that I'm going to be exhausted and that I'm going to not be producing as good a quality work. And so, you know, this is kind of the Perfectionists do this all the time. They work themselves too hard, and then they and then they work themselves, and then some, and then the the quality of the work gets compromised. So it's important to I think find that where you're happy, where you're grounded, where you, where it's good enough. I suppose that's that's the subtitle of my book. I suppose finding that good enough sweet spot, and and not being not being afraid to stay there, and not being afraid actually. You know, we're not going to get loads more growth at this point, but that's okay. The purpose was to reach this high watermark. And then try to focus on other things that, I guess, bring you purpose and meaning, but also help other people too. And I think that's the that's the challenge. Yeah, our satisfaction shouldn't only be hinged on an upward trajectory of growth, but also on other things like what impact and meaning am I making in the world? And I'm able to do that even if I'm not on a steady treadmill of growth. Yeah, exactly. That's what it's all about. It's landing the plane, I suppose, and and finding a, a good landing spot where, that you're happy with. And that's different for everybody, of course. But I think it is important that everybody thinks about that. Because if all you're ever chasing is growth, you're never going to be content. And you're never going to find a, a place that you're truly going to be happy with. And any accomplishment is going to be fleeting because you're always thinking about the next thing. So it is really important as, as well as getting a good starting and, and taking off. It's really important to have conversations with people around you and yourself about where would you be happy for us to, you know, to land this plane? Where where would be a good spot where we're satisfied and happy with? We're in the sweet spot of purpose, meaning, and impacting others. Yeah, and I, I think that people listening that have that um, that hyper competitive streaker, that super drive on overdrive, would say, "Well, that's resignation. That that's just giving up. If you're landing the plane and you're just good enough." So, you know, how do those people counter that thought? Well. Again, it, it goes back. So there's a lot of data and a lot of research. If we take it back to perfectionism, that perfectionistic people work really, really hard. They do all the things you just mentioned there. They keep striving all the time. And yet they're not more successful. And that's really curious because you'd think it wouldn't, you'd think it'd be the opposite, right? You think they'd be way more successful. But the reason is that they burn out and the quality is compromised. We've just discussed that. But they also do something really interesting, and that's 
that they tend to recoil when things start to get difficult. So for those people who have that kind of fixed mindset about they've got to do more, we've got to keep pushing. When the moment things start to go wrong, let's say, you know, of whatever targets or outcomes you're, you're striving for, you don't meet, then it can be really difficult for the perfectionist person. And what they'll often do is kind of remove themselves altogether. If I'm not going to succeed here, I'm not going to reach that goal, then I'm not going to try at all because I can't fail at something I didn't try at. And so this can also be an interesting psychology for, for people who, who, who have more perfectionistic tendencies in that, yes, yes, they do do this immense striving, but when things start to go wrong, it can it can cascade in a very bad way. And in order to save themselves, as to say, stop themselves from feeling that embarrassment, shame and guilt of not succeeding, then they can withdraw themselves altogether. So my message would be a cautionary tale for trying to do more and more and more is that it's exhausting, it's overwhelming, you're probably going to burn out, and also it's not likely to make you any more successful. Or happier. <laughs> Certainly not happier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love um, a lot of the examples in your book, and some of them you uh, were from the Tour de France and also talking about Lance Armstrong. And it, you also talked about shame in the book. And I'm, I'm actually referencing myself more than I normally do in this podcast, but I think that the, the application of some of these ideas is hopefully relatable to the listeners. So if people are like, why, why is she doing that? That's why I'm doing that. So shame. So I did this race in June and I had done a lot of work getting prepared for it, but it just didn't work out the way I was hoping. And I was in the race. I was, I was just like really bummed about it and not having fun. And I fun. And I asked myself, why am I not having fun right now? Like, what does it matter? The result that I get, you know, why am I concerned about this result that I may or may not get? And it came down to shame. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm ashamed of this like name that people look at that think needs to be at a certain place. Um, and the concern of what now, what are people going to think about me? And once I acknowledged that, Oh, this is shame that I'm feeling. And then I just accepted that. Okay. Like this is what it kind of feels like. And that's all right. Then I was able to move past it. But I think that a huge reason why people make excuses or, um, people can't be happy with their result, even if it's a great result is that shame piece of that. This should be better than it actually was. Yeah, shame is. I mean, you could probably tell that cycling is a is a hobby of mine, <laughs> and uh, I follow it quite closely. But one of the reasons why I use those examples is because cycling, just like most sports, actually, is really interesting failure theatre because most people fail. Mm -hmm. Like you know, I can't remember how many started the Tour de France, but only one's going to win of about two hundred odd cyclists. Same with Wimbledon, you know, there's 70 odd tennis players. Only one's going to lift the trophy at the end. You can go down all the sports and the vast, vast majority of athletes that start out are going to fail. I think that's so interesting. So interesting about actually what it means to be a human being, because most of the time we're going to fail. And there's something so intimately revealing about what it means to be a human in those moments. And Perfectionistic people really struggle with the with the sense of failure, particularly failure that's quite public, uh, that's on show, because it really reveals what they're trying their hardest to conceal. And the problem is for the perfectionists is this is going to happen all the time. It's going to happen. It's going to happen every day, week after month after year. And that's why it's so psychologically challenging because of the shame that perfectionistic people feel carrying that they carry around them, and that then is triggered all the time with these little setbacks and and uh, failures, mistakes, and whatever. Uh, and that's that. You know, and I tried to explain in the book. That's the main reason why you see perfectionistic people experience some quite significant mental health problems because when you take perfectionism and you put it in a chaotic world where there's all sorts of things that are going to go wrong all the time that's when those uh mental health problems start to surface so sh shame is a really big one to pay attention to and if you feel if you're starting to feel sh a lot of shame when you encounter setbacks and failures then it's highly likely that there might be some perfectionism going on there and what i tried to do in the, in the book is provide i hope anyway some perspective and hope that, you know, this is very normal, it's very natural, it's something very humanizing about failure. It shouldn't be at all something that we should be ashamed of. It should be instead something I think that we should embrace. Yeah, and in some ways, it's almost exposure therapy whenever you're showing up <laughs> to these events repeatedly, knowing that you're probably not going to win the event because 
It's hard to win every single event. And in that moment, whenever you are doing that, you have whenever you're not performing the way that you had hoped, or maybe you're performing amazingly well and you just still don't get the outcome that you were hoping for. It's such a great opportunity to practice acceptance and self-compassion. And I'm a, I'm still a worthy person. I'm still a worthy human being, even without these results. And almost if you can view it this way, like I'm going to repeatedly fail and I'm still going to be fine. And then that creates a different launch pad, not a deficit that you're trying to perform to fill a hole, but almost the space of, okay, I'm going to be curious about the things that are going to come up. And then hopefully I'm able to embrace and be able to weather this feeling and move past it. It's such a good way to work on that embracing affair, almost radical acceptance of letting the world happen rather than trying to happen constantly in the world. And the way I like to think about it is because even objectively high levels of performance can feel decidedly flat or empty when you're at the very top. So the higher you go, the, the harder it is. I think uh, Nassim Taleb did a recent mathematical experiment and he found that basically elite athletes, like those at the very top, are kind of six sigma human beings. That means that there's one excellent athlete or elite athlete for every 1.4 million people on the planet. Right, so just get your head around that. Like wrap your head around how unlikely it is that you will ever make it to the very, very top in whatever you do. And then if you're even competing, like if you're even mixing it there, you are so good. Like you are so, so good. So on those moments where you don't quite perform to the level which you hired or it didn't quite work out, I think sometimes just taking a step back in perspective and viewing your achievements in the broader context of what they actually mean is so, so important because there you're into that uh, zone of compassion. There you're into that uh, zone of perspective and reflection and being able to, yes, okay, you know, we, we don't have, you know, we're going to feel down. That's natural. But at the same time, we can appreciate that we gave it a go, we put ourselves out there and we'll just go again next time and, and, uh, and I think compassion and perspective is so, so important. And I want to talk more broadly about accepting success and not rejecting it because I, like I, I'm a coach and I work with lots of clients on mental performance and health and wellness. And something that I see among high achievers uh, and in my own life is that we'll succeed at something, but then it's not, it's not enough. It's like, well, here's an example. I'm a, I'm a world champion, which sounds ridiculous to even say it, but it, it's true. And yet it's not enough because of a comparison to an ideal and, or like I got this promotion at work and yet it's still not good enough because of whatever reason, because there's always this upward comparison of what is quote perfect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how can people work on accepting their success and celebrating that success while at the same time holding some of these feelings that might come up? Yeah, I mean, the better you do, the better you feel that like you're expected to do as well. It's kind of an, it, it, it's both internal, but also external. You know, I certainly feel that the higher you go up in my professional work, I've kind of felt like now I have a, now there's an expectation on me, like from mm -hmm. everyone, I'm going to keep pumping out important papers and all the rest of it. <laughs> and so this is like, this is how it works, right? I think the biggest thing is to try to live inside a reality where you know that you've made it to a very high place. You're able to recognize that, appreciate that, knowing that, you know, there's always going to be expectations that you place on yourself and other people. And to some extent, those expectations are really good. They keep moving, you keep you moving forward. They they keep you improving. But it's so, so, so important to make sure that you keep as much in perspective as you possibly can. Uh, I can't emphasize that enough. Um because if you don't, you will just continually chase a nirvana. It's never gonna, it's never gonna reveal itself. And uh, you know, going back to the point I made a, a minute ago, there's only going to be very, very few people that actually, you know, are kind of almost. They're not just outliers. They're kind of genetic. Like I'm trying to think of the word, but they're they're on such a. They're so remote in terms of like their physiology. Um, or the, uh, physical characteristics that mean that they you know, they will make it to the top, right? And that if you don't quite make it there, it's not just, you know, that you haven't worked hard enough or that you haven't put in the training hours. It's also that you might just not have had the, you know, you just might not have had the makeup, right? And that's that's also okay too. Like that's just fate and, and fate is nothing personal. It's, you know, you can't do it. Like go back to my example, I just was a late developer. Now I probably wouldn't have made it to the Premier League anyway, but it was just fate that I it wasn't going to be 
that I was going to make it through that system. And that's sometimes, you know, in the moment, it's really difficult. And as a young person, you can't conceptualize that. But as an, as an older person, I've been able to reflect. It's, it's quite, I think, soothing to be able to know that actually it wasn't ever going to happen. And that's okay. So I think sometimes we can over-personalize these things, looking at the bigger picture. And as you mentioned earlier, self-compassion, these are two really important things. So I found it really interesting when you talked about some of the work about the multidimensional model of perfectionism. And a lot of this that we've been talking about is self-oriented perfectionism. Can you talk about the other two? Yeah. So self-oriented perfectionism is that inner drive to be perfect and nothing but perfect and has has some self-criticism that comes along with it. But when we talk to perfectionistic people, you don't just hear stories about their own inner drive. You also hear them talk about expectations that feel are placed on them by other people and they feel like other people expect them to be perfect and everyone and all around them expects them to be perfect. That's called socially prescribed perfectionism. And then there's a third type called other-oriented perfectionism, which is where essentially I'm turning my perfectionism outwards onto other people so that I expect you to be perfect and nothing but perfect. And and so these three elements, self, social, and other, uh, are what we over many, many decades have come to understand as a kind of broad, multi-dimensional perfectionism model. Yeah. And in your book, you had a chapter on parenting and I have a one and a three-year-old. So I've been thinking a lot about, you know, parenting and all the different psychological skills that I've learned in my own life and how to, you know, help my kids and be a good parent. It sounds like a lot of the problems that come from parenting that brings up this feeling of I need to achieve or prove to be enough so that I get love from my parent the parent is projecting that other oriented perfectionism on their kids. Yeah. So my research rose to prominence on a finding that showed perfectionism was rising over time. And so as we, as we're moving through generations, we're seeing high levels of perfectionism, which is going to inevitably impact on future generations, because we know that perfectionism is uh, runs through is intergenerational, both through genes, but also through the ways that parents uh, parent and one of the ways that young people can pick up perfectionism is by learning socially that if my parent or caregiver expects me to be perfect, then or is has perfectionistic tendencies themselves, and I'm going to mirror those. I'm going to I'm going to learn that that's the way to behave. That's the way to uh, you know to strive. But it isn't just that young people learn from their parents or look at their parents' perfection and learn from it directly. They also can teach indirectly through things like conditional approval and, and and giving our children praise and warmth when they've done something well, like achieved A grade at school or whatever, but withholding that or subtly deferring that if they haven't quite reached that higher benchmark, which basically teaches them that they're only really worth approval and validation when they've achieved really high grades. And that can be quite problematic too, because it can tends to be a dependency then on high grades to feel like they're worthwhile, which can ultimately lead to perfectionism. So it's really important not only to, as a parent's listening, not only to try to sort of dial back those expectations that we have for ourselves and other people, but also really, really important to make sure that our attention, affection, love is unconditional. That's to say, it doesn't matter what happens, we're going to love our kids anyway, and it's got to be really consistently applied. And that's that's so, uh, it is one thing I recommend to parents all the time is that that's so, so important because that that really helps a healthy adjustment and, and a sense of very secure sense of self-esteem that doesn't, isn't tied to the outcomes. Uh, so it's really, really important. Yeah. And I imagine that takes a lot of self-awareness on the parents' part to not be projecting that, especially if that was what their entire, you know, the generations of their family had done. Yeah, it's so, so tough. And I got so much empathy. And a lot of my book is really a very empathetic view of parenting because it's it's not easy. And it's not just how we were parented ourselves to try to kind of unlearn those tendencies. I certainly speak from personal experience there myself, but also the world around us is is just so demanding. And you look out there and you, you see young people under so much pressure to do well in school and get into the right colleges to secure their futures in the best jobs that's a lot of pressure and 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 parents you know naturally are going to push because if they don't the, the consequences could be quite you know more severe than perhaps they were in their generation for instance so look there's so much pressure out there and it's so difficult right now um, and there is no one like right way to parent but i think there are some philosophical things we can take on board and try to apply and and the main one i think is unconditional regard 
Yeah. Something else that I think about a lot is culturally how we celebrate achievement and people, because this isn't just something where someone can say, okay, well, I noticed that I tried to get more love by achieving when I was younger, because when you get older, the same exact thing happens. Like you mentioned in in the book, like one person can win the tour de France by a tiniest margin more of effort or luck. And that person is hoisted upon their shoulders and celebrated I've noticed this in my own racing. If I win the race, well, everybody is like super excited about this and talking about it. But if I came second, well, nobody even really wants to hear from me. And this happens in school too. Like, oh, you're going to an Ivy League university versus, oh, you're going to a community college. Like there is this part where as humans, we over-celebrate and over-emphasize somebody's achievement instead of other things. And because of that, people will not feel good about their achievement because they're not, they're getting conditional love once again and you, they might still be achieving great things. Yeah, but they're getting it this time from society, which is very different to parents, and that's something yeah. that we can't control. It's really interesting you say that because it in the UK, we have this thing on A-levels results day, which is basically the results that tell well, that get you into university, right? So if you get good A-levels, you can get into the best universities, and if you don't do very well, then nobody really cares. And what's really interesting, the local newspapers and television uh, teams come to schools and they'll take photos of the kids who've got like the best grades, smiling and happy. And what they what they don't do is pay any attention to the kids' soul, like crying in the background or sulk, and they feel like they've kind of their whole future is now in jeopardy because they haven't succeeded on this one of oh, this this such an important day. And I was one of those kids. And yet, you know, like, cause I didn't get very good, um, A levels and I was in, I was in a toilet cubicle, like, you know, I haven't been consoled by my mother cause I didn't do very well. And I think oh. that's, and that's, but it is, no, but this is how young people are taught to see their value in, in like, there's a person there who's done something really, really amazing. Nothing, take nothing away from them, but there's the attention. That's, that's who the smiling faces are projected on. That's what's in the newspapers and that's what's on the television screen. And I think, you know, it's so, so important that we have a slightly different metric of success and that we actually understand that in society sometimes, you know, there's different circumstances for people's successes beyond like their abilities to try hard, you know, like learning styles and uh, social situations. I mean, the big one in the book for me is, you know, understanding that the people who've made it to the top of any particular profession did so, of course, because they worked hard. And they apply themselves. But there are also other factors there that are just as important. Luck, physiology, smarts, having the right social circumstances, growing up in the right communities. All these things are really important to later success that we don't focus on. We just focus on the end result, the outcome. Um, and I, I think sometimes we just need to take a much, as a society, a broader holistic look at what success is. And success will mean different things to different people. And success for me was getting into university that day, but it didn't feel like it because everyone else was doing so much better. And that's where the attention was. And I think, I just think sometimes we just need to have a little bit more of a kind of a balanced, okay, you know, if there are different metrics to success and that's okay, you know, if you worked hard, you applied yourself, then that's, that's all you can do. And that's the main thing. So yeah, I would agree with you, but it's it's such a difficult, that's a really difficult one to change. And we just kind of have to arm ourselves with an awareness that that's just going to happen. And we kind yeah. of have to manage. Yeah. I mean, we can't really change that, but I, I think just being aware of that is really helpful. And then being able to celebrate your success with people that are close to you and then figure out how to define that success. Like what did a lot of people don't have a metric for how they're going to define or measure their success. And then also you know, culturally we're told how to celebrate success. Like you have to go out to dinner with your family to celebrate success or have a beer or whatever. And that could feel really unfulfilling to celebrate in that way if that doesn't resonate with you. So like, how do you feel successful? Like the feeling of success is different than the actual achievement of the success. And it's different for every every person as well. And I think that's also important to remember too. And there's no one size fits all for success. If we just, if all we do is focus on the outliers and we, we say as a society, well, that's what success is. And anything less than that is, is a failure. Like we didn't make it to some top, you know, we're not, we're not a multimillionaire investor or we're not an elite athlete who's mixing it at the very top, or we're not an Ivy league professor or whatever, like somehow anything less than that. It's it's just you know it's BS it's total BS but that's how we that's how these high performance this high performance world that just celebrates the very very elite 
kind of teaches us all the time. And I think we do need to have a conversation about how healthy that is. And actually whether we, you know, there are, you know, I think a good idea for a podcast, for instance, would be let's talk to people that didn't quite make it. <laughs> yeah. Because I think they would tell us a lot about, a lot more about success than the people that did. Because what is it? How, why didn't you get through that final uh, hurdle? What was it that stopped you? And I think we could collate those experiences and we could understand a great deal about success by understanding what were the limiting factors too. Mm-hmm. That's just one example, but I think we could, as a society, it's important to have a, a more rounded uh, discussion about success and what it means to different people. Yeah, and it sounds like an underlying theme that we've talked about a lot is expectations, expectations of ourselves, expectations from others, expectations of others, and the comparison, comparison to ourselves, our past selves, comparison to other people, how we feel in comparison to other people and how that impacts our motivation and our, our feelings of adequacy. Yes, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that's one of the reasons why young people are struggling right now, because there were a set of expectations and there are a set of expectations that are pushed on them all the time. But the problem is they're running into more and more an economy that's a lot harder to thrive in. It's a lot harder to attain the things that their parents had, you know, like a house and a family before 30 and all the uh, and a community and being stable in one place and all of these things that we kind of consider to be synonymous with the good life are becoming a lot harder and it's that expectation difference between what young people expect to ha- have had at this moment in life and what they actually have it's causing a lot of psychological difficulties and you know it's really hard to recalibrate those expectations and say well uh, you know unfortunately the, the economy isn't what it was and you have to rein in what you what you think you should have by a certain point in time that's a difficult discussion after 50 years of <laughs> free market economics but nevertheless we are where we are and that's what faces young people and i think sometimes it is important to have a frank discussion about what is a realistic expectation and what isn't and i don't think social media helps in this respect either because social media really amplifies those expectations puts them on steroids almost and says you know this is what you could have this is what you could be this is what you should be and why aren't you and again that mix mash between what they see what young people see all the time staring back at them and, and where they actually are is really challenging psychologically it makes us feel low about ourselves um and it inculcates those perfectionistic tendencies and a kind of strive and desire to do more to be more to be perfect so expectation management is is huge but again you know you're running into a society that pushes unrealistic expectations all the time yeah i mean on social media there's how i don't even know how many filters there are but if you take a video or post a picture of yourself you can make yourself look any way you want to and it's almost like it's expected for you to use these filters so that you don't have a wrinkle or that you have perfect lighting or that you're only posting these amazing pictures of yourself you know doing your sport and the pressure to even post on social media can be really high. And then whenever people are perceiving a picture, they look at a picture and they assume that the best case scenario for that person, that that person must be feeling amazing. They must be strong. They must have all the time in the world. And then when they project it back on themselves, they their negativity bias, like everything is the worst. So it's this like really wild swinging scenario where they see this is the best of possible. And then they look in the mirror and say, this is the worst possible. But I think just as, just as, um, we can be moved in that direction by society that keeps telling us we need to be more and project perfect lives and lifestyles. We can also, from the bottom up, change that culture by trying to make sure that what we project into the outside world is is real. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, you know, some of the best, like if you really like manage your social media feeds, you can provide such a healthy environment where people are supporting each other. They're showing their real lives. They're providing help and support and advice and stuff that's like really super super informative and 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 tips and tricks and things that are really taken to the real life to make it you know to enrich it to enliven it but also there's a lot of stuff out there that is unhealthy and that pushes us in another direction to you know instead of be inspired to feel low about ourselves and so you know social media has has tremendous power to be really fulfilling and enlivening but we need to we the users need to use it i think in the most responsible ways possible but i think that's i think there is there's hope actually there because i think there's there is a counterculture occurring um and a lot of people are using their social media feeds like that so i think that long may that continue yeah and it takes courage to do that like i i do my best to 
portray an, a balanced image of, of what this actually looks like to, to pursue life. But it's hard to do that sometimes because, well, you know, what if people are watching and they think less of you like, oh, well, you don't train as much as I think you do, or, you know, you aren't as organized as we think you are. But I do think that there is um, freedom in that vulnerability of, look, like I'm not perfect. Here it is. And take it or leave it. And then you don't have to try to be something you're not. And I think also there's something quite humanizing about that, but also that brings people together. So when I so, so I do this thing now as a, a lecturer, because everybody that comes to watch me talk thinks that lecturers or p- professors, they know everything. Like you don't know everything. <laughs> yeah, but that that's see. Right? But this is this is really interesting. No, because this is so interesting because they they think oh you know this guy must be like so intelligent he must know all his statistics and yada yada, right? So what I do uh, now, it, and the first time I did this, it was amazing what happened. So I said ah oh, well I would have analyzed it like this. So I did an analysis, but I didn't know what I was doing at the time. So I did it wrong. And now I had to redo it in a different paper. And you can see like all the students just kind of breathe a sigh of relief that somebody who they thought was bulletproof has suddenly showed some kind of weakness and limitation that they did do something wrong. And that's what they do all the time, right? That's what we all do all the time. We all do, we all do ourselves and we all do things wrong and we all worry that we've made a mistake. And that and that's there's something quite empowering about that. And it goes back to the social media piece because I think it also brings us together when we show that vulnerability because we know deep down we're all vulnerable, flawed, fallible, mortal human beings. And there's something quite relieving about acknowledging that in ourselves, but also having other people reinforce that fact to us all the time. So just social media can be a hall of mirrors for perfection. It can also be a hall of mirrors for imperfection. And if we lived in that social media, I think it would be a way, way healthier place. Yeah. That makes me think about, you know, you talked about Kristen Neff's work in your book and I've had her on the podcast before, like the three elements of self-compassion, mindfulness, kindness, and common humanity. And I think that if you don't have that common humanity piece and you don't view people like, oh, that per- that professor, even though he's a professor, is also like me, then it's much harder to have self-compassion whenever you view yourself as other from everybody else. Oh, it's so... It, I love Neff's work. It's, it's, it's a cornerstone, really, of my own. And I think her just tireless effort to learn more about self-compassion, work out what it is and how it impacts us has been so... I think groundbreaking. I think groundbreaking is the right word in in this area, and and certainly that common humanity piece. For many years, actually, was a missing piece of self compassion literature. But it's so so important that it's there because, as I said, I think there's something so remarkably connecting, like socially connecting, with with this this idea that if we can be vulnerable with each other, that kind of strengthens our ties together. There's the, the you know, it. You know, we, we live in a loneliness epidemic. And I think one of the reasons is because we're so disconnected, not only from ourselves, but trying to be perfect, but from everyone else, because we're, we're, we're showing this perfect facade and that's not letting anyone else in. So as much as it's also important for us to have that self-clarity, it's so, so important also for our social world and our relationships with other people too, because opening up, being vulnerable, lets other people in. And I think that's, you know, that is the this for me this is like taking a sledgehammer to perfectionism which is why i I talk about it in the book because this is how you really break through those limiting tendencies to worry and impression manage and try to perfect everything and all around you once you can sort of break through that with the self-clarity that nobody's perfect how could ever be made perfect you can really start moving in in a very positive direction yeah. And on this compassion piece, so I was at this positive psychology world Congress last weekend. So hopefully I get this right. Cause there's like drinking out of a fire hose, but there was a lecturer, um, James Kirby, who was there talking about compassion and there was three, and I hope this was his, but there was three circles on this, this slide and it was self-compassion, compassion towards others, but receiving compassion from others. And I find that perfectionist achievers have a very difficult time receiving compassion Maybe you can be self-compassionate, but when somebody else tries to give you compassion, you can't accept that. Yeah, I mean, perfectionists move themselves away from other people. This is, if you go back to the work of Karen Horney, who I bring up in the book as a focal figure in in the perfectionism world, she was a master clinician. And one of the things she observed was that perfectionistic people all the time move themselves away 
for two reasons, but the main one is because they're so frightened of criticism and rejection. Like they're, they're, they're petrified that somebody isn't going to find them worthwhile that or acceptable and that they're going to be approved or criticized. And that's obviously has a massive impact on the way that we feel about ourselves. So we tend to recoil from social situations and move away, which goes back to the piece of being able to accept when people show us appreciation, warmth. These are things that can be very foreign to a perfectionistic person and they're very unsure or uneasy with those situations. And so again, the compassion piece, as I mentioned, is not just for ourselves, but it's also for our relationships with others. Yeah. Another example of that that might resonate with people is when you're doing something and someone tells you good job, but maybe you don't feel like you're doing a good enough job and then you can't accept the compliment that they gave you that you're doing a good job or when someone's cheering for you and you're not doing well in the race and then it makes you feel bad because you think that, well, this isn't actually my best. So like you're well, rejecting it. Well, it's also kind of part of the course as well, right? Like, you know, if you do something well, that's well, you sh- that's what you expected to do because you had set yourself those high standards. That's just part of the course. Like, you know, you shouldn't be patting me on the back for doing what I should have been expected to do as somebody who has a really high standard. So it's also that last, that satisfaction thing as well about not being able to appreciate um, successes or satisfactions because they're quite fleeting. Yeah. Okay. We did something well, but that's kind of what we expected ourselves to do. So go, and that's the same psychology when it comes to receiving praise. You know, oh, well, thank you very much. But yeah, that's really, you know, that's the bare minimum of what I should have been expecting. And now I've got to do again. And now I've got to go again. And now I've got to keep going again. So yeah, it's it's really, it, it's just a, it's a very problematic personality characteristic to carry around for, for so many reasons. But one of the things we don't talk about enough, and I'm glad we've spent a little bit of time talking about is, is how it impacts our relationships with other people, because that can be just as profound. So to close this out, I have a quote from the book. It says, the answer to perfectionism success paradox lies not in dialing it back a bit and striving for excellence instead. It lies in learning to embrace the inevitability of setbacks, failures, and things not going quite as we planned and being able to sit comfortably next to those humanizing experiences to let them be, not needing to rehabilitate them on the redemptive arc of excellence, not needing to strive them out of existence. And that was some themes you picked up at the end of the book as well, but the paradox and then the striving for excellence instead. And I know that you kind of mentioned in the book, like, well, this might not a hundred percent be it, the striving for excellence piece, because that could be taken out of context. But can, can you talk about what that means to strive for excellence? So, so excellence is, let's go back a bit. A lot of people say, well, perfection is an inherently impossible goal. So let's not, let's not strive for the impossible. Let's strive for the improbable instead, which is excellence. And the reason why I say it's improbable is I go back to that statistic from Nassim Taylor. No athlete is perfect, but quite a few are excellent. Now, the thing is, it's so unlikely that we are going to make it into that class of athletes that might be excellent. Let's say the top five, 10%, because these are, you know, these are kind of, this is almost like a moonshoot. Most of us, fully 75% of people are going to fall somewhere around the average. And there really shouldn't be anything shameful about being average. And what I'm trying to pick up in the book on that excellence piece is that, you know, yes, nobody's perfect, but also equally to trying to strive to be excellent is also a really, really high bar. And it's better to acknowledge and recognize that we may very well end up middle of the pack and that's okay. There's a lot of compassion in that. There's a lot of acceptance. That doesn't mean to say, by the way, that we don't strive. That doesn't mean to say that we don't work, we don't learn and grow. And on that journey, we might very well make it to the excellent athlete or the excellent professor, whatever it might be. And that's great. That's amazing. Enjoy that. But equally, we might not. And that's not a disaster. It's not a catastrophe. That's okay too. So being able to live inside that reality, accepting that things may go well, they may not go so well, I think is so, so important to live in a happy, contented, and I would say life that's filled with success because we know that striving hard and working too hard is not the recipe to success. That Actually being able to have balance and purpose and acknowledge when things aren't going to go well and, and strive in a very active an optimistic way to try and improve and grow and all the rest of it. And these are really amazing things. So that's why I, you know, that's my, that's my pushback against this idea that excellence is the thing we should be striving for, if not perfection, because I think it's really important to 
know that those things might happen, but they might not. And, he, and, he, and every outcome is okay. What's most important is that we exist. We live, we breathe, and we enjoy uh, this uncomprehensible existence. That's the most important thing. So yeah, that's where I, that's what I meant by that quote. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. And that's such a beautiful place to wrap this podcast up. Where can people find your book and find your work? So my book is available in uh, most good bookstores, I think. It's also available online. If you type in Perfection Trap, it's one of the promoted uh, links. Um, um, it'll pop straight up. And yeah, if you want to connect, it's uh, Tom Hyphen Curran on LinkedIn. And you can reach me also at uh, com. Great. Well, thanks so much for writing this incredible book and for the work you're doing and for this book launch. <laughs> thanks, Sonia. I really appreciate it. Great to chat. Thank you so much for listening to that podcast episode. I got so much out of it. It is something that continues to come up in my thoughts every single day. And I probably will reread this book because it was so impactful. If you enjoyed it, please share the show with your friends as that is the best way to help the show grow. Give us a shout out on social media or just send the link to your friends so that they can hear it because this is a pervasive problem in our culture. And I think that podcasts like this one can really shift the paradigm. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. Thank you so much to those of you supporting my work on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show and on PayPal, where you can find the link on sonyalooney.com slash podcasts. If, as I mentioned, I've been doing this show for six years, if there are certain topics that are very interesting to you, you can go to sonyalooney.com slash podcasts. And there is a drop-down menu that categorizes all of the shows. So if you want to hear more about plant-based nutrition, you can go there. If you want to hear more about parenting, you can go there. There's a lot of different topics that this podcast covers, and that is one way that I have tried to help get them organized for you. Big thanks to the team at Palm Tree Pod for making sure that this podcast is professional and to my audio editor, Roma. As my friend Travis Macy says, life is a team sport. So I couldn't do this without you guys. I'm so excited for all of the future episodes coming. I have done a great deal of work to record a lot of episodes and work on the programming in advance so that I am not stressed during this first semester of my master's. So I'll see you right back here next week. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. 